Welcome to Better Angels, the podcast for women living with purpose. I'm Susan Ferry Price, and each week I have a conversation with a woman who's using her voice to create more good in our world. Thanks for joining us. This week's episode is sponsored by SheBD. SheBD is the woman-owned CBD brand committed to helping women take control of their health through informed choices. SheBD provides the highest quality, CBD-rich, broad-spectrum hemp products available, products that help women restore balance in their minds and their bodies. One of the first natural products I ever committed to was Schmidt's Naturals deodorant, lavender and sage. Well, I admit, I dabbled a bit with the scents. But I'm particularly excited that Jamie Schmidt is one of the first guests on this new podcast. Back in 2010, Jamie was a social worker expecting a baby when she began mixing up personal care products in her kitchen. She was living in Portland at the time and began selling them at farmers markets and street fairs, becoming part of the booming maker movement in that city. A few years later, Jamie narrowed the line down to her popular deodorant. Soon she was selling in the regional Whole Foods and from there it was on to about 30,000 stores across the country. Seven years after those kitchen experiments, Unilever acquired Schmidt's Naturals for what we'll just call life-changing money. You might expect Jamie to take a break, maybe never work again, but she started her next act pretty quickly. Jamie's been using her voice to support other entrepreneurs, particularly women and other underrepresented founders. When Jamie was building her company, she was a proponent of omnichannel distribution essentially making her products available in multiple places, department stores, mass market retailers, and online. She's sort of taking a similar approach as a mentor and investor. Jamie's written a fantastic how-to book for entrepreneurs called Supermaker and launched a platform of the same name. She started an investment fund called Color and is now starring in Going Public, a streaming series that follows startup founders on their quest for funding and also makes it possible for the audience to invest in those companies. Jamie's had an incredible journey so far, and I'm sure there's a lot more to come. Here's Jamie. You know, entrepreneurs generally tell me they always knew they were going to become an entrepreneur. And from the time they were little kids, they wanted to start their own business. But that wasn't your path. Something I talk about a lot is this idea of, you know, can you just sit down and come up with a business idea and, you know, kind of what that path looks like. And it's different for everyone. But I think for me, I don't think it could have worked out any other way. You know, it was really a very organic process, right? I had been soul searching for for several years, trying to find happiness in my work and something that really resonated with me on a deeper level. And I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't even know at the time that it meant starting my own business. But once I started formulating personal care products and was really seeing the potential in those to cater to a mainstream audience, I realized there was a business potential in what I was doing. So I think the best businesses, and of course I'm biased, you know, really come from this stumbling in to a business idea, something that resonates with you on a personal level, something that solves a problem for you on a personal level as well. And just something that maybe doesn't have a whole lot of calculated forethought to it, but that's not always the case. There's a lot of businesses, of course, that are born out of this deep research and really solid business plan. And, you know, those are successful too. But I think, you know, for me, I'm the type of entrepreneur that sort of had to just fall into it to realize that, you know, that I, that I actually was an entrepreneur. 
and really that step-by-step organic process was really how you ran the company the entire time. Before we go any further, I want to give a shout out to your book, Supermaker, because it recounts your journey so well. It is so filled with great advice and, you know, it's actually really enjoyable and fast read. I've read a lot of these books and I thought it was one of the best I've read. You know, another thing I really enjoyed about the book was sort of watching your confidence journey over the years. You know, you started out with a nugget of self-confidence, no question, but it was very clear how it sort of grew and strengthened as the company also grew and how you made more and more successful decisions. And, you know, that was a really fun journey to take with you. Yeah. I'm glad you picked that up. I think, yeah, there's always been a level of confidence, but there's always also been this second guessing myself and you know, what am I getting into? Who do I think I am trying to pull this off? And that's exactly why I wrote the book so that other people could be inspired by that journey and to understand that, you know, there is not a certain type of entrepreneur, anybody that you know, believes in what they're building and it puts in the work can become an entrepreneur. And I think we're still at a point in society where, you know, there's this assumption that an entrepreneur lo- looks a certain way or has a certain background, or maybe they're born into money or they're, they were raised in a family of entrepreneurs. And through my story, you know, my hope is that people realize, you know, with, with that little bit of confidence that it will continue to grow as you, you know, prove out your concept, then you can go a long way. Yeah, let's talk about some of those key moments along the way. One of which I thought was when you decided to focus only on the deodorant and let go of the other products, which really was a bit of a risk. It's what was right in front of me. You know, that was one thing that was a consistent theme throughout building my business was let's tackle what's right in front of us, you know, what what's exciting in the moment and what's sort of this next logical next step, but not look too far ahead and, and really focus on some end goal that that we're confused by or that, you know, that is seems completely out of out of reach. And so, you know, living in Portland, it was the most creative city, you know, in the US, and there's just so many opportunities to get out and sell and become part of this community of, of makers and creators. And I really took advantage of that. And so, you know, that meant having these farmer's markets available to me every weekend, getting out and selling my product. And when you approach business like that, though, you, you have to keep your expectations in check because you go out to a market, you know, maybe it's raining or it's just not a well-marketed event. And, you, you know, you might make one sale or none. And it can be really frustrating. And you can start thinking, oh, gosh, I'm not cut out for this or no one likes my product. And, you know, so I always had to frame it as, okay, this every situation here is one step closer to building awareness for my brand, getting closer to becoming what's considered, I guess, a real business, right? And so just that, that patience, especially in those earliest days, was so key. Yeah, that's a bit of a juggling act, sort of keeping your you know, big vision in mind and your momentum, but also trying to keep the day-to-day realistic. Yeah. And I don't even know that I understood exactly what the big vision was. And I, I knew what I knew what my sort of purpose was of the brand and I knew what was exciting to me and I knew the potential and you know reaching a massive amount of people and stuff. But I didn't know like that the end goal might look like you know big acquisition to Unilever or that eventually I'd be selling my products into stores like Costco and Walmart and Target. But I knew that I had created a product that worked and that you know the mass market really deserved to have access to. And that sort of guiding principle is what you know kept me going. And another moment where you had to sort of shore up your confidence was when you started to pitch to retailers. You know, you'd been selling at street fairs and doing very well, but it's a different thing to sort of say, hey, my product belongs on your shelves. 
Yeah. I mean, first of all, it was so thrilling to know, you know, that there was interest in my product being on shelves. And a lot of that came from customers talking about my product and and going to stores looking for it. So I was just so grateful for those earliest customers that I met at the farmer's markets because they're the ones that, you know, encourage these retailers to pursue me. And I had so much to learn, but I was just so excited and eager to say yes. And so I, you know, I knew nothing about how to get a barcode or how to set my wholesale price, you know, what a promotional plan should look like. And, but I knew that, you know, I wanted to see my product on shelves. And so I just kept learning as I went. And of course, looking back today, you know, a lot of it just seems so basic. It's so obvious. And that, that community of entrepreneur in those earliest days is fun for me to tap into and to, and to remind myself like, Hey, we don't know all these things. And like, there's so much that, that I can teach right now. And, and then Lots of learnings along the way that are a lot more <laughs> mature and sophisticated and bigger dollar signs attached to, right? But just constantly learning. Was there any time that you just sort of said, whoa, Jamie, you did it. You made this work. You're a success. Yeah. You know, I have those moments now. We're four or three and a half years post-acquisition. But then at the same time, you know, what this definition of success is really subjective. So yes, I was able to, to grow a business successfully and have an, an exit and, you know, still continue to support the brand. And But then it, you know, brings into question, like, what does success look look like for me now? How can I continue to have impact? How can I stay relevant? And how can I help more people, you know, achieve that certain level of success? So leading up to the sale, had you been kind of thinking for a while that you wanted to maybe explore some other options or how did that come about? Right. And I had never thought about an acquisition, you know, while I was building those first, you know, six, seven years. We never took capital, you know, Schmitz was bootstrapped and had a couple lines of credit to sustain us to support our wholesale but we got to a point where, you know, that wasn't enough and we had to start thinking strategically how are we going to continue to fund this business? And at that time, we started entertaining conversations with VCs, private equity funds, and we brought on Goldman Sachs to help broker that search. And then through that process, we became exposed to, or I guess privy to some interest from some of these big strategics like Unilever. And when I first heard about that, it was it blew my mind because it wasn't, I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking I would be continuing to grow this thing, you know, for, for many years. And I just had to figure out how to fund it. And then when that opportunity came up, it was really interesting to me because I thought, for one, you know, this could be something huge for the business, it could really sustain sort of our next level of, of success, right? And major distribution, access to consumer insights and supply chains that we just didn't have before. And realizing that, you know, my brand was kind of in a vulnerable place, maybe without a, a partner like that. The competitive landscape had been growing. And, you know, that became really attractive to me for, for all those reasons. And so once that became an option, then I really sort of embraced that and thought, okay, we can do this, but it has to be the right partner. You know, I'm not willing to partner with someone that just doesn't get it. Someone who's going to come in and just really shake things up. But Unilever was a was the winner. And it was clear to me from day one, you know, there were certain things about the brand that they just had no intentions of shaking up. We had our brand teams, our product development teams that they really just had no interest in, in doing differently. You know, they knew that was our special sauce. And there were just, you know, some other things about the brand that were non-negotiables. And we've always been vegan, cruelty-free. That was always at the, you know, the forefront of our conversations. And, and then of course, you know, my role and moving forward with the brand, what would that look like? And um, you know, so we had some some pretty deep conversations there. But yeah, definitely looking back on it, just a crazy whirlwind of constant negotiations and reassurances and, and the diligence. You know, we <laughs> haven't even talked about that. Like that in itself was just pretty insane. As you say, the brand's values were always really important to you. 
had there been moments along the way when they were being tested and you were concerned that you maybe weren't able to hold on to them? Right. And it's hard as you scale because these values that you establish, you know, day one, they, they can start to look a little different as you grow. And how do you stay true to like, what's really important to you as a brand. And that was, you know, what led every decision for me, but it was hard because I also was the type of entrepreneur who was saying yes to everything, you know, and I wanted like access to everybody to these you know healthy products. And I wanted omni-channel distribution that, you know, so people could find Schmitz everywhere. And so that was just an added sort of challenge to maintaining values around you know, product quality and consistency and, you know, the, our messaging and, but the, the very, you know, key values that the brand was founded on, you know, I'm proud to say we're, we're always at the forefront and they still are, you know, even under Unilever's umbrella. So Schmitz will, the, the, the heartbeat of Schmitz is, is there, you know, despite that we've grown from farmer's market to this big, huge, really household name. So you're talking about juggling acts, your husband, Chris Catino had been part of this from the beginning and you had a baby boy at home. So I'm guessing work-life balance, not a big thing in your household. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole other level of, of challenge and then stress really. So I, I started Schmitz when I was pregnant and that was part of the motivation because like any mom, I was paying closer attention to the products I was using on my skin, wanted you know, clean, healthy ingredients. And so I made my own deodorant because the natural options on the market just didn't meet my expectations. And when I started, you know, it was really just products for me and, and then getting out in the market, having fun selling them. And then I realized, you know, through conversations with customers that more people wanted and deserved these products too. And so, you know, my personal story was relevant to, to so many people, but I did, I grew the business for the first few years by myself. You know, my husband was always there as a, as a supporter, you know, he believed in me and he was giving me the confidence and stepping up, you know, to take care of some of the things around the house and that I otherwise, you know, wouldn't have been able to do. And then I brought him in about four years in as our director of marketing. And so having him there, you know, we were able to really take the business to the next level. But yeah, there was just constant overlap in our personal lives and our business lives. You know, dinner conversations were <laughs> always, you know, but we had to, we had boundaries and we tried to honor them. But at the same time, we had to cut ourselves slack and realize that we, nothing will be perfect. Our son is the same age as the business. So that was always interesting. And my son is really the co-founder. You know, he was my motivation for starting this and he was there from day one and he's so attached to the brand. And if I am ever on a podcast like this and I don't mention him, he will call me out. <laughs> So props to Oliver, my 11-year-old son today. <laughs> but for us, it worked. But we happen to have just that energy in our relationship where we could make it happen. I talked to some couples who were like, how, how did you pull that off? There's no way we could have done it. And But I think one thing that helped too is that my husband and I met at a job. You know, we, So we've always had work as sort of part of our energy in our relationship. And now, you know, we have a lot of other projects we're working on together. But there's times when I'm like, okay, maybe a little separation here would be nice. <laughs> Not going to deny that. <laughs> yeah. And 20 years from now, some reporter's going to be interviewing Oliver about his unicorn startup. And he's going to be like, yeah, I was raised by successful entrepreneurs. I hope so. So after the acquisition, I would have spent a year on the beach, but that's me. And I was going to too. I really did. Not, you know, up until right after the acquisition, I was sitting there and I'm looking around my house. I'm like, I could do anything right now, right? Do I want to move? Do we want to just take a vacation with no end date? And But then I started getting emails from other founders and entrepreneurs who were just like so inspired by the story. They wanted help. And I realized, you know, that I had learned so much. And 
I hadn't really taken the time throughout building Schmitz to sit back and, and recognize everything that I had learned and how much I'd grown on a personal level and as an entrepreneur. Um, so I was excited to, to help other people and, you know, especially in CPG. So that was why I wrote Supermaker too. And that was why we started our fun color. But well, we still have time ahead of us to take that break, take that vacation when we need it. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say, we still have time ahead of us to start our next company. Yeah, <laughs> we get asked that a lot. I think about that, but I really, I don't think I could ever replicate the success I saw with Schmitz. And mostly because I came into that business with, so much naivety, right? Like just not knowing what could go wrong and not knowing all the challenges ahead of me and the things I had to figure out. And in a way that was beneficial to me because I was just so eager to go. But now I'm like, I know what can go wrong. I know all the things that are ahead of me and it's just sort of daunting in some way. So I'm, you know, it's exciting for me to plug into other companies and to help. And that's where I, you know, really. And you're doing that. Well, you're sort of everywhere. You've got the book, you've got the platform, you've got the fund, you're all over Twitter, you're on Clubhouse all the time. Is this sort of been pieces coming together randomly or you seem to have from the outside an overarching vision of supporting women and underrepresented founders? Is that by design or how is that kind of coming together in this next stage of your life? Yeah, it's interesting because there are so many facets to what I do, but they're all tied together in this effort to help. When we did start Color, it was really to bring funding and opportunity and awareness to, like you say, underrepresented entrepreneurs. And that, that was where we started. And then the fund started to evolve. And we now we, you know, we get deal flow from those communities because those are the people we we talk to, right? These are the people we engage with and that we are we support in other aspects of our work. And so, you know, it's not necessarily at the forefront of our thesis anymore, but it's like a natural progression of our fund. And that's, what's really incredible because there's so many funds out there who are making this effort, right. And they're falling short still. So we're just happy that we've been able to build up that community and see that deal flow constantly. And so generally in consumer packaged goods companies, we've started to venture a little bit in some of the technology that supports it. We've done, you know, a little bit of looking into crypto, which is the trend right now. And, you know, if you're not looking at it, then then who are you? <laughs> and so we're having fun. You know, it's, there's, we want some cohesiveness to who we are, you know, as a fun, but at the same time, we want to be able to sort of push boundaries and explore a little bit outside of sort of the norms around the CPG investor. Oh, I'm excited about crypto too, but you know, it, it's overwhelming. There's so much to learn and it's like, wait, what's happening today? Where's it going today? Yeah. And I'm one of those people who like is first, you know, pretty skeptical. I kind of fight things and I it's mostly because I'm like a you know a little ignorant and I like to be an expert in things before I start talking about them. <laughs> uh, my husband's the opposite. You know, he kind of jumps in quickly and is like really interested. And so I think we we balance each other out. But we've yeah, it's been really interesting. I mean, NFTs, if you're following me on Twitter, you saw that I've been posting about that a little bit recently and sort of navigating. Yeah, I saw that NFT artwork. It was sold out by the time I got wind of it, but it, it was a really cool project. Yeah, there's some really incredible projects right now. And I think brands and just people in general who want to you know, be relevant in the investor space just need to embrace it or, just, or at least know the minimum, right? I always say like, know as much as the average person knows, so you can at least have a conversation about it. But it's, it's intimidating, right? When we like something so new. One of the things I think is really interesting about crypto is how it is sort of democratizing access to money and taking out the middlemen along the way and some of the institutions that have been involved. And that brings me to your latest project, Going Public, because there's an aspect of that show that is 
democratizing investing. Right. I love that tie-in that you had there because yes, like crypto and, and sort of this NFT you know scenario is is about democratizing entrepreneurship for these creators, right? Or money-making opportunities, but also democratizing investment opportunities for the people who choose to take a chance and invest in these NFTs. But that exactly translates over to what I'm doing with Going Public is democratizing investments, but for the viewers, right, who are watching the show. So a little bit about the project or the TV series is this show highlights founder stories of brands that are raising capital, right? And they're raising it through this Regulation A plus offering, which is been around for a while, but but still a little untapped. I think not enough people know about it. So basically, everyday people can invest. You do not have to be accredited. You just have to be 18 years old and older. And so through this show, investors can watch and invest through this app. And so the idea is, you know, show these stories. My involvement is um, as a mentor, as you said, and so helping these brands raise capital, but also just build their businesses. So I'm mentoring on a lot of different things from branding to marketing to some distribution strategy. And I think it's going to be huge. I think it's a really compelling and innovative show concept. And I'm really excited to be part of it. Right. And for those who aren't familiar with startup investing, what basically you need to know is that until this regulation was passed, which was about 10 years ago now, you had to be what's called an accredited investor to participate in any kind of startup investing. Essentially, that meant you had to have a certain level of available assets. Usually, I think it was about a million or a certain income in order to even participate in any kind of a deal. And if you didn't have those, you just weren't in the game. So what's interesting about this and what the show is, is looking at is this regulation has been around, but you know it really hasn't been used that much. There's a lot of reasons for that, but it can be a game changer for a company. And it's a great way for a lot of people to get more involved in this process, which again, goes back to supporting women and underrepresented founders who typically don't get access to institutional VCs and the rest. Yeah. And it's really interesting that, you know, viewers are clearly going to fall in love with some of these brands that they're following a week after week and, and they can invest in these companies. And so it's just this awesome way to build ambassadors for the brand, you know, really get a large amount of people on your cap table that are going to be promoting your brand and rooting for the, for its success. And I think it's just an awesome opportunity, not just for the investors, but for the, the brands that are participating too. Yeah. And you look at the popularity of Shark Tank and this show is adding another more interactive and frankly democratic aspect to the process. So they will be really fun to watch. Yeah. So you've started filming. How is that going? It's been new for me, you know, for sure. Yeah, I've been on camera, of course, and, you know, for press opportunities and, and such, but being filmed for, for a series is different. But I've embraced it and I saw it as an opportunity to learn and grow and to really help and have impact with, with these companies. And it's, it's amazing. So the, the brands that I'm working with are all very different and they all have their unique challenges and unique opportunities. And so for me, you know, I come from the CPG background and I built a, you know, a deodorant brand, right? But how could I take my learnings and apply that across different industries, different types of businesses? And I realized that there's so much in common, despite what type of business you are, right? There's still these core fundamental learnings that every business needs. And that it has become very clear in some of you know, the mentoring that I've done. I love it. I'm really having fun with it. Now that you've been mentoring you know, in so many ways, seeing so many companies, are you sort of now have a gut instinct right away that 
this is going to work or this isn't. And what is it that triggers the gut? Is it the product? Is it the entrepreneur? Yeah, a lot of it is is the people behind the brand for sure. You know, but that as a savvy investor, right, it should only go so far. But I think I'm a little biased in that department because I see myself in these brands. Being an investor who was formerly a, a founder, I think just gives me a kind of a different perspective too. And I know a lot of founders obsess over, you know, when they send out their pitches, they make this case for why they're qualified and this and that, you know, and I like, to me, I'm just like, cut to the chase and like, let's talk about your product, show me your enthusiasm for it. And, you know, your commitment to this on a long-term basis. And so I think I approach the investment opportunities a little bit differently. And that perspective is so crucial because traditionally those qualifications are actually keeping a lot of women and other underrepresented founders out of the game because the official qualifications were essentially to be a young white male out of Harvard or Stanford or a techie. And, you know, it was such a narrow, narrow idea of what qualifies somebody or who has the potential to make a company succeed. My story is a perfect example of something that, you know, challenges that sort of assumption. And so I like to give those founders a chance. And I think, you know, every industry is so competitive right now too. And, you know, we really have to show why the product or service that we're offering right is relevant right now and thinking, you know, to the future, like how it's going to stay relevant, especially now with this whole sort of web three crypto scenario that we find ourselves in, like the landscape is just different. So as you were shifting into a whole nother period of your life and your career, what are you sort of learning about yourself along the way? I mean, obviously you're using your knowledge and your wisdom of experience about running a company, but you're doing a lot of new things. I think admitting what I don't know has been really key as an entrepreneur, as an investor and the other projects I'm involved in. I think everybody gets so hung up on trying to prove our expertise and, you know, again, qualifications, but admitting what you don't know is just so much strength in itself. And so I think, you know, I always encourage people to just be open and honest. And I've tweeted recently vulnerable, you know, vulnerability is such a amazing characteristic that I don't think we utilize enough in business. I think it's something that we shun, right? Like, oh, this person's vulnerable. That means they're weak, but I think there's strength there. And I just hope that, you know, as a culture and as a workforce, we start to allow ourselves a little bit more of that. Oh gosh, I completely agree. I have always loathed that fake it till you make it advice that is often given to women. You know, no, have the confidence to ask questions, to admit what you don't know, to be vulnerable and authentic. That is what confidence is. It has nothing to do with pretending to be something you're not. You know, looking at your uh, Supermaker platform and your expansion of that, you know, the word maker has a very specific connotation in a lot of people's heads. Yeah, I want to challenge stereotypes around that image that we get, you know, when we think about a maker, because we think about the man in the wood shop or like the metal burner, whatever, (laughs) you know, there's a sort of masculine sort of like workshop aesthetic that we think of. And I think maker, you know, really is somebody who comes up with a creative idea of a product that they create with their hands and then turn into a business potentially. And so I always talk about there's two different ways that consumer products companies are born. One is from makers, you know, somebody who has an idea and they create it, they, they make something and then they realize, oh, there's business potential here that, you know, maybe they hadn't thought of. And then the other is that business idea comes first. 
right? And then it stems from there and less less maker, but more intention behind it. I think both are interesting and warrant potential for success, but I'm I'm really mostly passionate about sort of that, that maker born brand. Do you think the pandemic is pushing that further? You know, my impression is that a lot of people are getting back to their creative instincts or exploring talents, creative talents that they kind of put on the shelf. I think so. And I think even if they don't, like I say, didn't, don't realize that right away, you know, then they start building and loving the work and, and getting other people interested in it. And then they realize, huh, maybe this is something I could either you know, monetize or start exploring on a, on a deeper level. Well, I'm all for that. And that's what we need, you know, not only to bring more people into creating companies and products and services that they're passionate about, but also that are solving some of the world's problems now that we're facing in in ways. And hey, we all want to work for passionate leaders as well. So it's all good. So thanks for being with us today, Jamie. What I love most about Jamie's story is how she trusts her gut and she stays open to new opportunities. Find her on jamieschmidt.com and on social. I'll have all the links in the show notes. And don't miss her on Going Public, which begins streaming October 19th on entrepreneur.com. Thanks for listening. Follow Better Angels on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. A rating or review helps us expand our community of visionary women. For more of those women and great women-owned brands, visit SusanFerryPrice.com and follow me on Instagram. Know a world-changing woman or brand I should know? Of course you do. Drop me a line at Susan at SusanFerryPrice.com. See you next week.